the grind, the term, <laughs> you've heard it, you've probably said it, the grind. Uh, what comes to mind? At work, yeah. When we hear a term like the grind, it can be work, it could be a, yeah, the day-to-day, the old routine. Whether working outside the home, or working in the home, or retired with consistent, constant responsibilities. We all can relate to feelings and emotions related to the grind. My father made the following statement a few years ago. He, he said, I don't know how we had the time to do all that we had to do before we were retired. Life is... Whew, life's exhausting. Life is good, but life, life is exhausting. The term, and we've adopted it, adulting. We're adulting, and, and, and we're, we're adulting kind of at full force. And whew, adulting wears, wears one out. It, it wears on one. And, and, and if we're not careful, wherever you and I are found on the great cogwheel of life, <laughs> the grind we can get ground up. And we need rest. We need, we need relief. We need a break. Where do we go when we need rest? The writer to the Hebrews has been reminding his audience, then and now, of the essential reality of trust in the Lord and what he says. And, and if you have been with us the last couple of times, the, the writer to the Hebrews recapped two instances in Israel's history, in salvation history, where Israel refused to trust the Lord's direction. And, and one was in Exodus when it came time for they were they they were thirsty and they needed water and they had a they had an issue trusting the lord and his with his provision even though he had led them out of captivity he had led them out of slavery he had fed them he had brought them across the red sea he had fed them provided for them and yet they had an issue trusting him for for water and then later on in in the book of numbers they refused again to trust the lord as they were at the entrance to the promised land, a land promised way back in Genesis to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had an issue trusting the Lord. Could the Lord really bring us into the promised land? And what happens because they, they refuse to trust Him, this inability to trust Him. I mean, they are on the home stretch. But they refused to trust him, and as a result, the majority of that generation whom the Lord said, they've seen my works, but yet they refuse to trust me, to obey my word. And what happens? They die in the wilderness. That, the majority of that generation, they die in the wilderness. And for 40 more years, the children of those Israelites were kept out of the promised land. And, and at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer to the Hebrews says, well, let us fear 
that if, while there's a promise remaining of entering His rest, entering His salvation, that any one of us, we don't, we don't want any one of us to come short of it. We've had the gospel preached to us, the good news preached to us. And, and today we begin in verse 3. For we who have believed, we enter that rest because He's... He said we would, just like he said, as I swore in my rest, they shall not enter my rest. Referring to those Israelites in the wilderness. So this idea of entering his rest, we probably ought to define the word rest. And a lot of things come to mind when we hear, like the word grind, when we hear the word rest, lots of images come up. And a biblical definition of that word rest... I'm going to give you two. One of them actually refers to the eventual settling in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. All that we've been seeing about the journey to the promised land, the word rest definitely applies there. But there's also, if we zoom out, there's this overarching definition of the word rest, and guess what it is? It's rest. <laughs> it's rest. It's it's. It's resting, but it's also dwelling or habitation. And so the way Jake defines it is this. It's where we stop, and it's where we stay. Rest is where we stop and where we stay. We who have believed in the gospel, good news, that's what the word gospel means, in the good news of salvation in Jesus, we will enter into the rest of the Lord. And, and there will come a day when we are in the presence of the Lord, we will be at ultimate rest, and we will dwell with the Lord. This idea of dwelling, we will be in His presence. Well, then the writer to the Hebrews says something unusual. As he's quoting those words from Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the Lord's works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, what's this? Well, if you were to flip back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the very first book, Genesis, and you were to go to the very end of the very first chapter, what we would see is, is that God sees all that He has made those six days of creation and all the heavens and the earth and the expanse and all of it. The entire created order, six days. And God sees it, and we see in the very last verse, that first chapter, that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was not only good, it was very good. And in Genesis 2, verse verse 1, we see, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day, and he sets it aside as something special. The word that's used is sanctified. He sanctified this. He set this day aside as something special. Because in it, he rested from all of his work, this completed work. He's rested. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he he makes a connection between this resting of the Lord, following the acts of creation. He connects that to, to the Lord, from the Lord to 
man's ability to enter a heavenly rest. And what's the connection? Well, there's a sense of rest following a divine act. Be it the building of the world at creation in Genesis, or be it building and providing salvation for your soul and mine, divine work of the Lord is involved. It's foundational to both of those acts and the response to those acts, which is resting. Whether it's God at work at creation or God's Holy Spirit at work leading you and me to salvation, rest follows. And then the writer makes another distinction. He, he says, even as God rested following creation, that's, that's a closed act. It's all, it's all created. God made it, God made it all, and God, as a, as a seminary professor of mine used to say, God made it, God made it all, and God made it all good. And of course, then sin enters in. <laughs> but God made it, God made it all, God made it all good. And then, it's closed. But... The beautiful thing about salvation, it's available still to all who will come. When, the Holy, when we are open to what the Holy Spirit says and how the Holy Spirit comes, as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and convict of sin. And once we see our need to have our sins forgiven, then what happens? We have the opportunity for salvation. That's still open. It's not a closed act like the creation of the world. The writer says in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, and he's talking about these Israelites, the wayward Israelites in the wilderness, he said they failed to enter because they were disobedient. Then what happens? The Lord again fixes a certain day today, saying, and he quotes David in Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, today. And this is not the first time we've seen the writer to the Hebrews address today. Back in chapter 3 of the letter, we, we are told to take care. He said in chap, the writer said in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 12, Brethren, take care that there not be in any, any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You don't wait and you don't waste the time. Do it today. Encourage one another today. Today, today. Today is the day if you hear his voice. And as we've seen these last two times together, the heart is part of the process. The heart, the heart. We're told to not harden the heart like the Israelites. Unbelief will harden the heart. And, and this lack of belief shown by the Israelites' unwillingness to trust Moses and, and ultimately trust God, and their constant grumbling and their complaining and the testing, which, is, which was seen throughout the wilderness journey to the promised land, their refusal to, to listen to God's voice through Moses, don't harden the heart. Verse 8. The writer then says, For if Joshua had given the Israelites rest, the Lord would not have spoken of another day after that. Joshua 
what in the world? Joshua? Where in the world did Joshua come from? Well, we have to remember that, that part of the original audience of this letter, they're Hebrews. They're Israelites who've come to saving faith in Jesus. They've come to understand that what God's word says about the Messiah, the anointed one, that all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. And they've come to faith in Christ. And so what happens, these Israelites, they know their history. I believe I still could probably ask you all the question, who's the first president of the United States? You all probably, I would hope, could give me the same answer. (laughs) In the same way, Joshua is mentioned. Joshua is is a hero of their faith. Joshua is one of the, the, the founding fathers of our faith. Joshua is the successor to Moses. And, and Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And so what happens? Well, you've probably heard the story of the Battle of Jericho. I could stand up here and march around and sing the song. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Uh, the conquest of Canaan land... Well, after all the battles and all the struggles and all the challenges, the day comes because the Lord was with them. The Lord brought the Israelites success and the Israelites finally settle in the land. Like I told you a moment ago, that idea of rest. In Joshua chapter 11, we read the following. Joshua takes the entire land. They they conquer the land in keeping with all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. All those promises are fulfilled. And Joshua, what happens? He gives the land as an inheritance to Israel. That's what the Lord told Abraham way back. And it's broken down into allotments to the twelve tribes. All of those, all of those people, all of those thousands, the land is divvied up. And what we see is that the land has rest from war. You see, once everything is allotted, there's rest in the land. There's, there's a reprieve. Whew. Everybody can kind of Breathe easy. But we see that Joshua can't grant a rest that goes until forever. This is not an eternal rest because Joshua, as good as Joshua was, Joshua doesn't have that kind of power. Moses didn't have that kind of power. I mean, if this had been the case, then the writer tells us in verse 8 that the Lord would then have had no reason really to ever again speak about another opportunity for rest. It would all have been taken care of. Verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Look how that's written. There remains a Sabbath rest. There's a Sabbath rest that's coming. It's not here yet. And the word for Sabbath rest, the word we see for this is, this is the only place in Scripture that we see it. 
and what it means, it's, it's a blessed rest from toil and trouble looked for in the age to come by, by Christians. Toil and trouble. If we've lived for any length of time, we understand those two words, don't we? Toil and trouble. But, but you see, the rest, thanks be to God, the rest remains. The rest is, is still available, and the rest is coming. Verse 10. For the one who has entered the Lord's rest has himself rested from his works, as did God from his. What, what is that saying? What is all that saying in verse 10? Man, simply this, man cannot enter rest on his own volition. What do I mean? Man is led into the Lord's rest by the Lord himself, Jesus. Jesus said a great many things. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that mankind may have life and and have it abundantly. You see the enemy, that's the devil, comes to steal and kill and destroy. And this is how, this is one way he does that. He steals our time. He steals our time. Do you ever do you ever feel overwhelmed by? So, so he so so the enemy steals our time and and he kills our joy. Do you do you ever feel your joy having gone just killed? So, so he steals our time and he kills our joy. And he can destroy our hope. Do you ever feel that all hope is lost? Sometimes I do. Preacher will make true confession. There's times I feel that way. All hope is gone. My joy is gone. I've lost my time. I mean, that's how the enemy works. And as a result, we're we're exhausted, we're frazzled, we're overwhelmed, we are riddled with anxiety, And we have no rest. But because because of a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples, he said, I'm going to a place that I'm going to prepare for you. And it's a place which would 
involve the cross, but it would also involve the resurrection. Because of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus can lead us to rest now. This place he's prepared for us. Where he's prepared it and for whom he's prepared it. And if we allow him, Jesus can take our sin and our guilt and our shame and he can replace it with his righteousness and his peace and his rest. Doesn't that sound good? does to me. We can have an abundant life and abundant hope now. But only in him. And, and there will come a day when Jesus wants to lead us into his ultimate eternal rest. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The Israelites don't follow their example. Again, we're given warning to be diligent to enter that eternal Sabbath rest. We're told to seek that rest. And we're told where to look for it and we're told where to find it. You see, for me, this is just me, I equate rest with a sense of completeness. Maybe some of you can relate. But that's... That's how I I equate rest and and completeness. Those things over which I obsess now, there will come a day in which I will no longer find concern over said issues. It won't matter anymore. Finding rest and completeness. So how does that even look? Can you imagine being complete? Well, I can't. And here's why. We were never designed to feel completeness on this side of life. Let me say that again. We were never designed to feel completeness on this side of life. One reason, we weren't meant for here. Do you remember the garden? Dwelling with the Lord in the garden? That was the plan. We weren't designed for this. Our joy will only be made complete in the presence of the Lord. Maybe you don't know this. Maybe you do, but do you know that we have an intentional God-shaped hole in our lives. It's like a puzzle piece. We have a puzzle piece with the name God written on it. We've got a space for it. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, tells us the following. The Lord has made everything appropriate in His time. He has also set eternity... In the heart of man. So that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Man can't comprehend all that God has done. But yet there's a place in the very creation of man. The very heart of man. There's a peace 
that will never be filled by anything else than God. I mean, we're told that very clearly in his word. And, and what happens, as God has placed eternity in your heart and in mine, a yearning, and a lot of times we don't understand that at the beginning, but it's in essence a yearning for him. But try as we may and try as we might, we, we aim to fill that God-shaped hole with other things. Even rest. We've tried to achieve rest through so many other things. Again, the reality, we were not designed to feel completeness in this life outside of Christ. David, King David, says in Psalm 16, verse 11, Lord, you will make known to me the path of life. And then he says this. He says, in your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Amen. And, and that sounds good, and that, that would sing well, and, and all that, but if you think about that statement, the presence of, the, somebody's presence, whose presence? Your, your presence. Lord, in your presence, there is joy. Whew, and its fullness. We were never meant to be complete here on this side of life. Only in the presence of the Lord. And what a lot of folks don't understand, a lot of believers, in fact, they don't understand, we were never meant to fill this completeness without Him. And, and we attempt to fill that sinkhole of the heart with all sorts of, of vain things and fancies. Some good things, sure. And some things not so good. To fill our time and to fill our worth. And they're well, some are well-meaning and, and it's good intention. And, mm, but it boils down to putting things in the space of that God-shaped void which don't belong. And so often we're trying to force things to fit which don't fit because it's not what it was designed for. Putting things in spaces, in that space of that God-shaped void, things which don't belong. And, and when we do that, just like a sinkhole that gaping, yawning hole in the ground or the highway, <laughs> which is never staple, it's, it's, it's never quite filled with sufficiency, that hole which is always there. Whew, and it's exhausting. And I promise you, I promise you, the heart will function like a sinkhole when we look for things to fill that space other than the Lord who made the heart. The Lord who made your heart, and he made my heart. Again, Jesus can begin to lead us to completeness and to rest now. If we allow him, Jesus can take our sin and our guilt and our shame, the dregs of the grind, and he can replace those with his righteousness 
and his peace and his rest. We can have an abundant life and an abundant hope now, but only through him.